spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks preparing uh, for what I would share with you today, and one of the conclusions that I came to was that the Bible, the history of the Bible is so rich, and it's so complete. You know, I was talking with a friend of mine this week, we were having lunch, and we're both taking part in an audio daily Bible reading, and, and we were talking, and it turns out we were thinking the same thing at the same time. And we kind of had a little bit of a laugh about that. We were thinking when we were looking at uh, the formation of the Hebrew nation through Abraham to, to Joseph to Moses, we were thinking, you can't make these stories up. I mean, the Bible is, is so rich. God's hand is all over the history that he's left for us. And it's a history that leads to the Savior. It leads to Jesus Christ. Everything in the Bible from Genesis on foretells about Christ. And so that's what it's all about. You know, a lot of you know I had the privilege of traveling to Israel back in 2017. A lot of you know that because I talk a lot about it. And maybe some of you think I should probably stop, but um, I'll, I'll kind of judge that and I'll, I'll back off. But it, it had a big impact on me because it made the Bible kind of come to life a little more. It took on like three dimensions and not just the trip but just the appetite I had to understand more about God's chosen land and God's chosen people. That's Israel. So last week, Randy provided kind of an overview of the structure and the makeup of the Bible. Today, I want to share with you a little bit about the history of how we, how we got the Bible and the geography of the land where all this stuff occurred. First, I want to share with you a little bit about how we got the Bible, the, the canonization of the Bible. And there's a lot to know here, and, and there's more than I can share with you in, in one sermon. And so we're going to try as we move forward. Uh, we've started this, and it's going to go beyond this sermon series. We're going to try to put links to different resources on our Move University portal online for your personal study, for your personal devotion, also uh, for group study, so you can dig more into this stuff that we're sharing with you. So the process of canonization, what does that mean? What does canonize mean? Well, really, it's to, it's to kind of declare something that's, that's above reproach. To, to canonize uh, the books of the Bible, that basically was to establish those that were of, that were of greatest significance. So of, so of all of the books of the Bible, all the potential books of the Bible that were written... It was essential that a list was drawn up that would represent and reflect the truth of God's message and also to, to make sure that the scriptures that were canonized were truly inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so that's the process of canonization. In the Old Testament canon, uh, that process was conducted mainly by Jewish rabbis and then eventually by leaders of the church, the early Christian church. But in the end... It was God. It was God who selected the canons of the Bible. The complete canon of the Old Testament wasn't complete until after A.D. 70, after the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. Not until after A.D. 70. But parts of it were recognized a lot earlier than that. For example, the prophets and the Psalms, they were identified as Scripture by the end of the 2nd century B.C., and the Psalms were accepted, but the remaining books kind of varied depending on the Jewish sect in the country at the time. 
Then the rabbinical schools of the Pharisees of the time arrived on a final list of 24 books, and that constitutes the 39 books of the Christian Old Testament that we know today. And so these Pharisees, they, had, they insisted that the books, first they had to conform to the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, also known as the Pentateuch. And they had to have been written in Palestine, and they had to have been written in the Hebrew language. And they couldn't have been written before, um, or I'm sorry, after the time of Ezra, which I believe was about 400 uh, B.C., Randy mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls last week, and i got to bring them up again because this is what confirms the accuracy. It was, it's almost as if God had this plan of giving us this gift to show us that the Bible that we have is, is accurate and that it's legitimate. The, the neatest story that I've heard is when those scholars opened those scrolls that they found in those clay jars in the mountains of Qumran, when they opened them up, they could read them. They were in Hebrew, and they could read, you know, languages tend to change over, over centuries. And a couple of thousand years after these scrolls were sealed in these clay jars, the language was discernible. The Hebrew language is unchanged. The language of God's people was unchanged over a couple of thousand years. And these scholars could read them, and they recognized them as the Old Testament Scriptures. There's no doubt in my mind that God used those to confirm the authority of Scripture. The process of recognizing and collecting the books of the New Testament, that began with the early church. Very early on, some of the New Testament books were recognized as inspired. Paul considered Luke's writings to be as authoritative as the Old Testament. Peter referred to Paul's writings as Scripture. There were two councils, uh, one the Council of Laodicea and the other the Council of Hippo. I think they, they convened in about uh, 370 A.D. And, and they confirmed and concluded that the Old Testament and the 27 New Testament books uh, needed to be read in the churches of the time. And they had some principles for confirming the, the New Testament books. They had four principles. The first one, the author had to be an apostle or the author had to have a close connection of the apostles. The book must have been accepted by the body of the church at large, and the book had to contain a consistency of doctrine and orthodox theology, orthodox teaching. And the book had to bear evidence of a high moral and higher spiritual values that would reflect that it was truly the act of the Holy Spirit that inspired the books. But most importantly, it was recognized during these councils that it was God, and it was God alone that selected the books of the Bible. I know a lot of people that say, well, the books were selected by man, and so it was flawed. I even have one friend who's trying to convince me that it was so corrupt we can't trust it. But the bottom line is, I think the evidence tells me at least that it was God, despite the limitations and the sins of men, it was God who inspired this process, just like it was God who inspired the writers that wrote them in the first place. Folks, the history of the Bible, like I said, it's rich and it's complete, it's accurate. I've heard the Bible called a deep well. 
Or maybe even an onion. When you keep peeling back layers, you always find something new. You find something fresh. And folks, it's there. It's there for us. It's more accessible to us than it's ever been in any generation. I can, I can take out this phone, and I've got access to, to every interpretation, every, every version of the Bible is right here. I can look it up in a heartbeat. It's in printed copy. It's all around us. But statistically, amazingly enough, a lot of people, in our country at least, aren't opening it. It's ours for the taking. And I hope that if, if I get any kind of message across to you today, it's that we need to dig in to God's Word. We need to make that our daily routine. And so there's another concept that has helped uh, this stories of the Bible come alive for me. And that's to understand these things, these occurrences, where they took place. And so where they took place in, in a certain land. You know, all my life, ever since I was little, teachers would teach me and they would read these verses and they would read about these places. And I used to think that I was so dumb. I didn't know about where these places were. I couldn't picture them. But as it turns out, I don't think a lot of the people that were teaching me really understood either. Because I don't think we've taken enough time to really think about these areas, these places where these events took place. And so as a result of that, the Bible has kind of taken on a two-dimensional kind of feel for me for most of my adult life. It's kind of a flat plane. See, I had no visual concept about these lands, about these areas where these things took place. The authors of, these, of the Bible have been very explicit about mentioning these locations. So one would have to assume that there's some significance about knowing where they are. So to better understand the Bible, I think we need to understand the context of the locations where all these things took place. And I've got good news for you. It's not a lot of ground to cover. You know, world geography was always tough for me because there's so much to know. But you know, everything that took place in the Bible, if you pull out Paul's missionary journeys, which was Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, if you pull that out, everything that happened in the Bible took place in an area about the size of the state of Texas. So there's not much to cover. You don't have to know world geography. You just have to get a better understanding of the first century Middle East. And so God's story begins at a time, and it begins at a place. And their place was in the Garden of Eden. You know, there's no real way that I can stand up here and tell you I know exactly where the Garden of Eden was. And there's some people that even believe, there's some theologians that think it existed kind of on this, this unearthly plane that we can't understand. I don't really buy that because I think there's no evidence in the Bible, at least biblically. And so I kind of refuse to call that anything but a theory. Because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Okay, so that gives us a little bit of a clue as to where the garden might have been. Then there's another clue. If you continue on in verse 10, it says, A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it separated into four headwaters. Now, there's a lot of smart people, a lot of people that are a whole lot smarter than me, that believe with some certainty 
that at least two of those rivers that the Bible talks about are modern-day Tigris and Euphrates River. And so given its description as being in the east and these rivers that flowing out of it, a lot of people believe that the Garden of Eden could possibly have been located at the confluence of those two rivers just before it spills into the Persian Gulf. In biblical times, that was, the, that was Babylon. Today, we know it as the country of Iraq. Abraham. Abraham was said to be from a place called Ur. And it's kind of conventionally accepted, it's traditionally accepted that this was located just south of the Euphrates River. So that kind of shores up it, as its close location to where the Garden of Eden might have been. It kind of shores that area up as the possible location. This area in ancient times was called Mesopotamia. It was also called the Fertile Crescent. But there's a secular term that it was also identified as. It was identified as the birthplace of civilization. And so that's secular and that's cultural, but I don't think that the culture ever intended to do this, but I think it kind of shores up that location of not just the birthplace of civilization, but the birthplace of man and creation itself. So I want to fast forward a little bit and let's talk about the land of Israel, the God's chosen land and his people that were going to enter into this place. See, Abraham was taken by God out of Ur and into the Negev desert and into Jerusalem. Then his offspring ended up in Egypt with Joseph. And 400 years after that, they became enslaved by the Egyptians. The Egyptians didn't trust them. They worried about them, so they enslaved them. And then an unlikely Jew by the name of Moses was called up by God to lead his people out of their shackles and into the land that he called the place where milk and honey flowed. And through their disobedience, that took them through a 40-year journey into the desert. And because of their disobedience, only their descendants would ever see the promised land. Moses himself never set foot in that land. This tiny little land, this tiny little country, dwarfed by its neighbors, surrounded by hostile countries from the very beginning. If you look at the map, if you look to the left of the map, you can barely make out this tiny little sliver. Israel. Surrounded by modern day countries like Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt. All Muslim countries hostile to their existence. They all want Israel's destruction. And you know, given its location, you would think that all of those hostile countries and all those people could just push the Israelis, right into the Mediterranean Sea. It looks like it would be impossible to stop them. And folks, they've been trying. They've been trying since the formation of the country to do just that. And they've never been successful. They have always, Israel has always defended themselves. And I think that's evidence of God's protection. Even from the times of Joshua, when they were looking at these, these big guys, these Canaanites, and they looked at their modern weapons of war. And some of the Jews were afraid, but some weren't. And they went in and they defeated them. Unlikely battles that the Israelites won. That, in, in ancient times and in modern times, that's how it's been. It's a miracle that Israel, this tiny little country, survives. It's God's miracle. Because it's God's chosen land. 
This country is small. It's not much bigger than the state of New Jersey. In this overlay map, you can see that Israel is a little under 11,000 square miles. New Jersey is about 8,000 square miles. But if you pull out the West Bank and the Gaza Strip where the Palestinians occupy those territories, it's the same size as New Jersey. A tiny little country. When I was there, we traveled to the northernmost part, to, to Caesarea Philippi. And it was right on the Syrian-Lebanese border. We were about five miles from Syria. And that day we traveled south to the, to the southern shores of the Dead Sea. And we got there in about two hours. And if we would have continued on for maybe three or four more hours, we would have gotten through the Negev Desert to the Red Sea. And we would have covered the entire length of the country in six or seven hours. It's a tiny little country protected by God. There's a tension there, especially in Jerusalem. It's kind of palatable. There's a tension there. It's been there since the beginning. It's there now, and it's going to be that way until the end. I think the Bible tells that until Jesus returns. I used to think that Israel was this flat, sandy place with palm trees and camels. But I can tell you right now, after being there, there's no flat spots there. There's not very many at all. I think they should call the old city of Jerusalem the city of steps. Because everywhere you go, you're climbing and descending steps. If you want to get a good workout, go spend some time in the old city of Jerusalem. There's no cars on most of the streets. The streets aren't really streets. They're very narrow, and um, there are a lot of them are 15th century stone. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an arduous place to travel in. You know, other than the coastal plains of the Mediterranean Sea, the, the elevation changes in short distances is pretty acute. As you can see by this map, that the, the area of Israel is pretty mountainous. And there's a lot of mountains named in Scripture. There's Mount Carmel. That's where Elijah contested the false prophets of Baal. Uh, there's Mount Tabor. That's the site that a lot of people believe um, that, um, that um, the transfiguration of Jesus took place. It's the place where the Canaanites were taken on by Barak. And then there's Mount Gilboa where Saul led you know, a, a, a fable attempt to conquer the Philistines only to fall on his own sword. And then there's Mount Arbel on the northwest shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's also called the Ambush of God. And a lot of people believe that that's where Jesus gave his great uh, commission uh, to his followers on that mountain that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. The tallest mountain in Israel is Mount Hermon in the north. When we were traveling along the roads along the Golan Heights and the, the Mount Hermon came into view, I was surprised to see snow. But Mount Hermon has snow caps. It's actually, there's a, there's a Jewish ski resort on Mount Hermon. Never had a clue. The, the glacier melt off of Mount Hermon provides most of the water for the Jordan River that spills into the Sea of Galilee and into, finally into the Dead Sea. Then there's the Galilean Mountains that's translated wavy mountains. That includes Nazareth. Nazareth is about 1,100 feet above sea level. And across the Jezreel and the Jordan River Valley, you have the Golan Heights. And whereas the Galilean mountains are called the wavy mountains, the Golan Heights is a plateau. The Galilean mountains are made up of 
limestone that's formed by limestone, the Golan Heights, by volcanic basalt. Then the Judean mountain range that includes Jerusalem. Jerusalem is 2,400 feet above sea level. It's said that no matter what direction you come from, you are always going up to Jerusalem. And then across the Jordan River, the Transjordan mountain range. And then to the south of that, the Moab mountains on the east bank of the Dead Sea. Moab being where Ruth was from, if you remember that story. So if you want an example of some extreme changes in elevation that can occur in Israel, if you were going to travel from Jerusalem at 2,400 feet above sea level to Jericho, which is 827 feet below sea level, if you were to make that trip, it's about 18 miles. That's 180 feet uh, drop per mile, over 3,200 feet in, in change in elevation in 18 miles. To give you some concept of what that's like, that's about 4% slope, or it's about the slope of a wheelchair accessible ramp. And so it's pretty significant over a short amount of time. And you know, Jesus and his family traveled that distance probably more than once per year. They had to at least once per year to come to the temple for the Day of Atonement, but all the other festivals they may have attended as well. And so they did that on foot, this arduous journey of about 80 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem, first down in the, Trans in the Jordan River Valley, then up to Jerusalem. It was an arduous journey. You remember when Jesus, when Mary and Joseph left him in the temple? First, I want to take a little aside. When Jesus was in the temple at 12 years old, I call that his bar mitzvah. That's when he was becoming a man. It was the first time he was allowed to talk to the, uh, to the, to the rabbis. First time he was allowed to ask them questions. And so he was there for three days. I think Jesus wanted to stay there. Psalm 69 says, The zeal for my father's house consumes me. And so that was a prophecy about Jesus. So I think he wanted to be there. I think he was probably longing to be under the tutelship of a rabbi. I think that's what he wanted, but it's, the Bible says that he didn't do that. In obedience, he went back with his parents to Nazareth, and he continued to grow in stature and wisdom. When they left him in the temple, it says about a day into their journey, they realized he wasn't there. Well, a day into their journey from Jerusalem would have put them in Jericho. But it says they didn't find him until three days later. So because of the change in elevation, because they had to backtrack uphill, it took a lot longer for them to get to Jerusalem. So that might change your perspective a little bit about Jesus' movement because in his three-and-a-half-year ministry, he made that track several times as well. Some people believe he traveled on foot with his disciples for thousands of miles just in that three-and-a-half years. And so to me, that talks about the time that he spent with his disciples. The time that he spent growing with them as they grew in, his, in understanding who he was. So if you're going to give a geography lesson, you have to talk about the bodies of water as well. And so there are bodies of water that are mentioned in the Bible. The first one I want to talk about is the Sea of Galilee. And so this is a picture of me on a boat on the Sea of Galilee up above my uh, shoulder to the, to the right of the picture is actually the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus delivered his famous sermons on the mount. But it's, uh, it's called the Sea of Galilee. We call it the Sea of Galilee, but it's actually a lake 
Uh, it's known as the Lake of Tiberias. Most Israelis, Hebrew-speaking Israelis, know it as Lake Kinneret. They really don't understand it as being a sea. That's just through our English translations that we've arrived at that because it's not a sea at all. It's a moderately sized freshwater lake. It's about 14 miles long, 7 miles wide at its highest level, and, and it, it fluctuates given the seasons. And it's about 700 feet below sea level. Then there's the Jordan River. It starts in the north in the Hula Valley, running south to the Sea of Galilee and eventually ends into the Dead Sea. It's not a very big river at all. It's only about 156 miles long. The widest part may be about a mile wide. Most of it can be measured in yards. It's not that big of a river. Some people believe it was probably bigger in biblical times. It's smaller today because of the irrigation that's pulled from it along the arid climate of the Jordan River Valley in support of settlements and farms. Something I didn't know is that there are class two and three rapids in some locations. You can actually go whitewater rafting in areas on the Jordan River. The Jordan required crossing by the Jews when they came into the promised land. And, and I've heard that what Hebrew originally meant was the crossed ones. So it identified the Hebrews on the other side of the river. The Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Jerusalem and they crossed the Jordan, and God actually parted the waters of the Jordan just like he did of the Dead Sea. And of course, most famously, John the Baptist baptized in the Jordan. And the most prominent figure that he baptized was Jesus in those waters near Bethany. Then there's the Dead Sea. The Bible actually calls it the Salt Sea. And this is one of my favorite photos that I took at sunrise at about 6 a.m. over the Moab Mountains reflecting on the flat waters of the Dead Sea. It's called the Dead Sea because it harbors no life at all. Not even bacteria can grow in the waters of the Dead Sea. And it's because of its high content of dissolved minerals or salts. And people ask me how salty is it. It's to give you an example, the Atlantic Ocean, is the salinity is 3.4%. In the Dead Sea, it's 34%, or 10 times the amount of salt as the Atlantic Ocean. It's the lowest point on earth, and that's what lends to its saltiness. It's 1,400 feet below sea level. It's fed by the fresh waters of the Jordan River, but there's no outlet and so that's why it accumulates this saltiness. It doesn't flow out. It only evaporates. It's a, it's a, it's a desert arid climate, 0% humidity most of the time. And so the water evaporates. And you can see in this photo, as the water evaporates, the minerals stay behind. And so the, the saltiness builds up. And so what you're seeing here are crystallized salt formations where the water has evaporated close to the shore. Kind of looks like being on a different planet. And they allowed us to swim in the Dead Sea. And you really don't swim in it. You just kind of lay on top of it. Because of the, the saltiness, you know, the buoyancy, it pushes you out of the water. You can literally lay on your back and read a newspaper. And then when you stand up upright in water that's over your head, you feel like a fish bobber because you're kind of sticking about this far out of the water. It's the weird, weird feeling. But swimming in it has its risks. 
It's said there's a fable there that says you cannot drown in the Dead Sea, but you can die in it really quick. Ingesting a cup of the water from the Dead Sea would require your stomach to be pumped to save your life because of the toxic nature of the, of the, the chemicals. They told us to take off our jewelry because it would turn your gold black and it would corrode, corrode silver. And we were told not to stay in the water for more than 15 minutes. And when we got out, we were supposed to immediately rinse off with fresh water and then wait 15 minutes before you got back in. Now, swimming in the Dead Sea is a popular thing in Israel. They've got a huge, really opulent resort for people to come just to swim in the Dead Sea because they say it's therapeutic. If you have a skin condition, it's supposed to be good for that because it exfoliates the dead skin when you swim in it. The trouble is, if you stay too long, it starts to burn the good skin away too. And so it's kind of something you need to be careful about. So I want to end this on a, with a conversation about Jerusalem because it's the most prominent place we need to know about in Israel. This is modern day Jerusalem looking at the southern end of the Temple Mount. That big square is the Temple Mount. What a lot of people don't know is the big golden dome. That's called the Golden Dome of the Rock. It's actually a Muslim shrine. And the smaller dome at the bottom of the, of the sheet on the Temple Mount, on the bottom of the picture, is the dome of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Because the Muslims currently control the Temple Mount, where the Temple used to be. It was a concession the Israelis gave when they granted land back to the, to the Palestinians. And so when you go up onto the Temple Mount, there's actually um, a moral police force called the WAF that makes sure you don't touch another woman or that women's uh, pants aren't too short. I mean, literally, that's, that's what it's like to be up there. But this is the old city. The city of Jerusalem has a long history. It's been attacked 52 times. It's been captured and recaptured 44 times. The most recent was in 1907 during the Six Days War when the Israelis seized Jerusalem as a whole. It's been besieged 23 times, destroyed completely twice. The old part of the city was settled in about the 4th century B.C., so it's one of the oldest cities in the world. The temple was constructed in 960 B.C. David, King David, picked the site, but his son Solomon carried out the construction, and it was, it was a major feat. Some people estimate it took 180,000 craftsmen, artisans, and constructors to build it. Then in 587 B.C., the Babylonians destroyed the first temple. Then 70 years later, the construction of the second temple started. And then under the reign of Herod the Great, a guy they called the Builder and the Butcher, it was restored. It was expanded. The Temple Mount was expanded to be about the size of three football fields. The colonnades around the Temple Mount walls were gilded with pure gold. The temple was built out of marble. It was opulent. And to this day, people really don't understand how he pulled that off with ancient equipment and ancient labor. It's one of the wonders of the world. This is the same temple that Jesus sat in when he was 12 years old, when Mary and Joseph left him behind. This is the same temple that Jesus uh, overturned the tables of the money changers. And Jerusalem is the city that Jesus wept over at his triumphal entry. 
It's the same Jerusalem that was leveled in 70 AD. Just like Jesus said that no stone would be left on top of another. The old city walls in modern day Jerusalem were actually constructed in the 15th century by the Ottoman Empire. It covers an area of only about 0.35 square miles. But it has 35,000 occupants. It's not a very big city, but the population density is, is, is huge. To give you a little uh, idea of what that's like, Woodford County as a whole has 24,000 people, covering a whole lot more landmass than just a third of a square acre or a square mile. Now here's something that's something I know some people probably don't understand, is of the 35,000 people that inhabit the old city of Jerusalem, 27,000 are Muslim. The city's divided into four quarters. The Muslim quarter, the Armenian, the Christian, and the Jewish quarter. And the Muslims, those 27,000, live in one small corner of it. And so the population density is huge. Right now, the city of Jerusalem is totally shut down. Because of the population density with the virus, uh, you can just kind of figure out why they had to do that. Most notable sites that you'll see in the old city are the the Temple Mount that that I just showed you. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the traditional location where Jesus was actually crucified and then was buried and was resurrected. It's it's a huge church controlled by several different religions. I mean, it's just an amazing place uh, to be. Then there's the the Western Wall. We, We call it the Wailing Wall. I found out that Israelis don't like that. They call it the Western Wall. That they're there every day, day and night, 24-7, praying. The history of Jerusalem goes back a long way. The history of Israel goes back thousands of years. Looking at our history, we're a couple hundred years, right? And so there is plenty to know in trying to better understand about God's chosen land and his chosen people. I started out telling you that the history of the Bible is rich and it's complete. And it seems like it seems like God has just went completely out of his way to, to make sure there's plenty of evidence that what we see with the scripture that we have, the Bible that we know today, is accurate and it's inerrant and it's inspired by himself. The manuscripts that we have, the process of canonization, the archaeology all work in concert to give us a comfort that what we're reading is truly the inspired Word of God. Jerusalem is is a crazy place. This land, this, this chosen land that's blessed, this strange and uncanny place is proof. This place that where, where conflict has erupted since the beginning. And where there's conflict now. And like I said, I believe there'll be conflict in God's land until he comes back and settles all the scores. Knowing more about God's word. Knowing more about his land. About his people. That's been a real blessing for me. And and I pray, my prayer in delivering this to you today is that it will whet your, up, your appetite to do so. I can't give you all of this in 30 minutes. I can't. It's impossible. But I hope that it's encouraged you to dig more into God's Word 
to whet that appetite towards understanding not only God's Word, but His call on your life.